Hi there. This is Sam Musgrave, pastor over college and young adult ministry at Trinity Community Church. This podcast is a collection of the sermons from our gatherings. My prayer is that you will grow in knowledge and love for King Jesus, or maybe come to faith in him for the very first time. Join me now for this sermon. First Corinthians 7. First Corinthians 7, 1 to 16. You can now at this moment open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 to 16. I've told you the points for tonight. That Paul is going to correct the warped view of sex and singleness in verses 1 to 5. That he's going to condemn, I'm sorry, commend, we need to make sure we get those right. He's going to commend singleness as advantageous in verses 6 to 9. And he will condemn a married person's pursuit of singleness in verses 10 to 16. But as you turn to your page in the Bible, I want you guys to do a mental exercise. All right, I want you to imagine being at a church that is only 18 months old. A church that was only planted 18 months ago. For us right now, that would have been July 9th, 2021. Not so long ago. You could probably imagine what you were doing back then. That's when the oldest, most mature Christians in your church were saved. Pretty much everyone in your church has the same spiritual birth date. And it's a month, that's a year and a a half ago. 18 months ago. That is how incredibly young, that is how incredibly inexperienced the church of Corinth is. Some of your believing brothers have actually returned to visit the temple prostitutes up on the mountaintop. The temple of Aphrodite, just outside the city. Can you imagine the scandal in a church today, if that was happening? That's what the state of the very young church of Corinth was. Now, luckily, they were brought to repentance in droves. They didn't stay in that sexual sin for long, but but they didn't know a whole lot. Now, others on the other side saw these disgusting cultic temple prostitute uh, activities. And you have other Christian men and women who are equally young in the Lord, who've returned to their Greek philosophy in response to this sexual immorality, and they've looked to Greek philosophy for their sexual ethics, they're prohibiting any sexual activity at all, even in marriage. Okay? So total celibacy. Now you, as a very young adult, are totally confused in this church at Corinth. You feel that without godly parents, you're just a fresh convert yourself, You feel completely directionless in a dark world. I say that to comfort you. No matter how messed up your past is, no matter how much baggage you're bringing tonight, the church of Corinth as a whole was far more messed up. And this letter, the inspired word of God, was authored to them in the loving heart of God. So receive the word of God as his his swelling affections toward us here tonight. Paul wrote the first six chapters of this letter on issues that our church was totally unaware of. 
Our church leaders, it wasn't even on their radar. They haven't identified these problems. That's why the Apostle Paul feels that it's so important to actually draw these out and say, look, these are problems for you, Church of Corinth. Now here, at chapter 7, verse 1, we see him transition. We see him now begin to tackle the problems that our church leaders, our elders, our struggling church leaders and pastors have written to Paul about. These are the things that they know are issues. And they want his word. They want the word of God. First point, the Holy Spirit corrects a warped view of sex and singleness in verses 1 to 5. The world speaks about protected sex. Hey, let's get you protected sex so that you can set, you can really have as much unprotected sex, you can have as much careless sex as you possibly want. You can have as much recreational sex with whoever you want. Well, that's not protected sex. God tells us that he's designed sex within marriage, heterosexual, monogamous marriage, as a way to protect us. And that it's something good that he designed to be enjoyed by a husband and a wife. Verse 1, now, Paul says, concerning the things about which you wrote. You see, I've been writing about things I needed to get off my chest. Now, about the things you wrote. I'm finally addressing what you wrote me about. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, if you read that, some of you have translations that help a little bit here. If you read that carelessly, you're going to read that as if Paul's saying this. But Paul's actually quoting what the Corinthians had written to him. You say that it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Greek did not use quotation marks. Paul is quoting what they have said. You wrote this. You wrote, good for the celibate man. That's what you said. I want to talk about that. I want to address that. That's what he said. The perversion of Corinth had led them to say, holiness equals abstinence permanently, universally, no questions asked. No sex ever. And you can imagine their entire life, their entire cultural history, had only witnessed a sexuality of sin. They only identify sex with sinfulness. They've come from a pagan, heathen background. That's all, that's the, the water in which they swam. They were like fish in sexual sin water. They, they, they didn't know anything else. And they said, because of all this sexual immorality that we see, our culture's pervaded with sexual immorality, no one should ever have any sexual Activity whatsoever. I was trying to think of a better word than activity, okay? No sexuality whatsoever. But, Paul says, verse 2, but, he's contrasting them, but, that's what you said, but, because of sexual immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. We've Got to take this a little bit slow, because we need to understand what Paul's saying, especially in the context of all he's going to say here in chapter 7. Since we're not going to cover all of 7 tonight, I might bounce out of it, or bounce later into verse 7, chapter 7, for you guys. Does Paul say 
that every single man and every single woman must mandatorily get married. No. If he said that right there in verse 2, he's going to contradict himself in a matter of no time. That's not what he's saying. To have is technically the word to hold. Where do you think he got the, the language of to hold fast? Well, we'll get to that in a moment. Every married man is what he's saying. Every married man should hold fast to his wife. And every married woman should hold fast to her husband. Are you married? You guys should be holding fast together. Physically, you should be enjoying intimacy with one another. That we listen and he commands in verse 3, the husband, in case we were confused on what verse 2 meant, the husband must, that's a command, that's obligatory, the husband must fulfill his duty, that's mandatory, duty to his wife. Aren't you amazed at the wisdom of God the gentleness of God that he doesn't lead by saying the wife must fulfill her duty to her husband. There's something here that protects our hearts, especially with the, the, the gross sin, the abuses out there and the world and its wicked movements destroying the relationships of the married couple. That he starts with the husband. Husbands, you have a duty and you must fulfill it to your wife. You must serve your wife. Likewise, also, the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do you hear that? There's absolutely no room in Scripture for a my body, my choice mentality regarding anything when it comes to marriage. There's absolutely no room for that whatsoever. And we're going to dig deeper into that. That attitude is an abomination to God in loving marriage. Ladies and gentlemen, be very, very careful. We should hear already what's been said, and we should be struck with a care, with a, with a great carefulness that we do not romanticize marriage, overly romanticize it, unhealthily romanticize it. When you marry a man, ladies, when you marry a woman, gentlemen, you surrender your body to them. <clears throat> you surrender your body to them. So make sure that you're marrying someone you can do that to. Because you must do it. You must. Aspiring husbands, you will be obligated not to satisfy yourself but her. I'm going to say that again. Aspiring husbands, you will be obligated to satisfy not yourself, but her. Aspiring wives, you will be obligated not to satisfy yourselves, but him. The fascinating miracle is that when you live to serve one another, you do find satisfaction. But we were made for service 
when it comes to matters pertaining to the marriage bed, which, by the way, Hebrews says, must be held in honor among all. How many of you are single? That is not married. That's what I mean, not married. Okay, just Gordon. <laughs> Most of the people in this room are not married. Do you know that you are under obligation by the word of God, single person, to hold marriage in honor, to say marriage is wonderful. If you have an attitude that says, eh, marriage, I don't want to marry. Like that, you're not hold, you're disobeying scripture. It must be held in honor among all. Now, where does Paul get this idea? Is he making it up? He's getting this from Genesis 2, which Jesus quotes in Matthew 19. So we've got Genesis 2, which Jesus quotes in the New Testament. Old and New Testament agree. Jesus says, have you not read that he who created them, he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. God made male and female. God made gender. And there's two of them. It's no wonder that Satan goes to such lengths to confuse humans about that matter. He made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined, hold fast, to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no one separate. Do you understand that when you attend a wedding ceremony, what is happening there before you is not merely human. Something sacred, something divine, something sovereign is happening. God is bringing two people together in what he has brought them together. They didn't bring themselves together. What he has brought together, they, neither they nor anyone else gets to separate it. It is permanent. A husband and wife are one another's possession. They belong to one another. Therefore, verse 5, Paul makes the practical application. Stop depriving one another. Don't think that you're being super spiritual by ceasing sexual intimacy in marriage. That's what some married couples were doing, thinking that that's what Christianity meant. They were totally wrong. Husbands, do not withhold from your wife. Do not rob her of the attention, of the care, of the affection, of the romance, of intimacy. And wife, do not deny your husband. Serve your husband in love. Guys, stop robbing each other in marriage. That's what he's saying very clearly. Verse 5, except by agreement. If you both agree... Okay, and that's not, husband, you saying, let's go on a fast. And she's like, well, I don't really want to, but no, let's do it. Okay, I agree. Or the wife going, I don't want to. And the husband going, all right. That's not agreement. Okay? Real agreement, except by real agreement, you both mutually agree for a time, a short time, a very brief, limited time, an understood time, a declared time. Not, hey, let's stop. And, you know, we might resume in the future. No, we're agreeing. And we're saying, okay, we're agreeing on it's going to be a day or it's going to be three days or whatever. Okay? So that you may devote yourselves to prayer. That's the only purpose. Short amount of time, totally agreed upon to pray. That's it. 
You see, it, it could be your friend that you're withholding from one another intentionally because you're going, boy, I want to be with him. I want to be with my husband. I want to be with my wife. You know what? That, the reason we're doing this, we're fasting so that that, that drive, that desire reminds me, I'm going I'm to go to the Lord about this thing that we decided we were going to pray about. Must be a very important thing to pray about, huh? And come together again. Quickly. So that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. See, Satan can't put desires in you. Satan can't put temptations in your heart. But he can bait what desires you have. He can bait what desires you already have. You lack self-control. Satan doesn't make you lack self-control. He'll bait that lack of self-control. So watch out, man. Come back. Brothers and sisters. I'm going to quote Elvis Presley here. <laughs> Only fools rush in. Realize who they are. Realize who you are. But realize who they are before you marry. Realize who you are marrying. I hope this is putting a weight on you. A tremendous weight. Think about this. I'm going to ask you a couple questions. And I want you to let the Lord search you with these questions. Will you really go on a date because they're cute? Is that it? A couple questions for you. Do they have self-control? Can you honestly say they have self-control? Are they selfless? Can you say that yet? Do they serve? Have you watched them consider others? Are they responsible? Do they respect authority? How serious are they? And yet, you are open to trusting them with your body and your future. You'll date them. I mean, have, have, they, have they honored their agreements? Are they a man or a woman of their word? Do they devote themselves to prayer at all? Would you say that they are self-controlled? Are any of the previous questions I've just asked unanswered in your mind? Then why in the world are you going on a date with them? All of those emerge directly from the text we've read. We barely made it through, what, verse 5? Let the word of God search you. Let the word of God protect you. Let the word of the God who loves you, love you. I am a 35-year-old pastor. I have seen a lot of unhappy marriages. And let me tell you this. The frustrations of singleness do not compare to the frustrations of an unhappy marriage. And that's where you're going if you do not approach it wisely. Second point, the Holy Spirit commends singleness as advantageous. This one's a hard, it's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? Verses 6 to 9. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that singleness is profitable? If not, do you know that you're not believing that is disbelief? Because you disagree with God's word here. I'm so thankful that the Lord's kept me single this long. I want to get married terribly. I want to get a wife. I want to have children. I'm thankful that the Lord's kept me single this long so that I can say this and not be embarrassed that I'm being hypocritical or 
not sympathetic. I know exactly what you're thinking. I've thought the thoughts that you're thinking. I've had the struggles that you're having. I continue with them. And I've never more believed 1 Corinthians 7. It's true. But I say this as a concession, not as a command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one this way, another that way. But I say to those, I say to the unmarried and to the widows, by the way, he's very specific to say there that is the divorcee and the one whose spouse has died, that it is good. That it is good for them if they remain even as I. Some people speculate that Paul was a widower because of this verse. We don't know. All we know is that, yes, Paul means what he just said. Good for them. It is good for them. Was it mandatory for every person to marry back in verse 1 or 2? Was it mandatory? Is that what he was teaching? No. Is it mandatory for you to be single? No. It's not a command, he says. Not a command. The Roman Catholics have historically wrongly made it a command for their clergy. However, the Reformers traditionally have kind of made an equal but opposite unhealthy overemphasis, which is essentially you haven't quite arrived until you're married. Both are wrong. Catholics say that the spiritual should be single, and we tend to think that singles are inexperienced. They just don't know as much as married people do. It's not true. We'd be wise to remember the marital status of many of the prophets, of John the Baptist, of Paul, of Jesus himself. Furthermore, remember this. The apostles who were married never spoke of their marriage. Ever. We don't know the name of Peter's wife. Peter never smitten writes. He's like, husbands, love your wives in an understanding way. Is I love old Maggie. <laughs> Let me tell you, I mean, he he, we don't have any of that. Isn't it interesting that we don't have any of that? We don't have a clue what Peter's wife's name is. We know that Peter was married. They don't have it. But, Paul says, I wish everyone was single. Like me. But that's not an order. As one pastor said, marriage is expected. Singleness is exceptional. Now the most important, he says, our gift, this gets confused big time, our gift is what we have right now. Our gift is what we have right now. Some of us presently have marriage in this room. That is God's gift. To you right now. Others presently have singleness. That's God's gift to you right now. What you have this day is the gift that God has given you. Now, why say this? Because singles wrongly panic 
an irrational fear that they have the gift of singleness. This is the gift nobody wants to open. You think about we've stigmatized. Oh, maybe you've got the gift of singleness. No, I don't want the gift of singleness. Yeah, but maybe you've got it. I don't want it. <laughs> I've asked. I've had people ask me so many times. Sam, do you think that God's giving you the gift of singleness? I'm saying, yeah. I'm single, aren't I? I hope He gives me the gift of marriage tomorrow. <laughs> Elizabeth Elliot was married, count them, not once, not twice, three times, and yet she spent most of her life single. I don't think she had that planned. She's widowed twice, once by brutal murder when she was in her 20s, after being married for three years. The second, her husband, she lost to brutal cancer. For just five years of marriage. She says, if you are single today, the portion assigned to you for today is singleness. It is God's gift. God in his wisdom and love grants it as a gift. Let not our longing slay the appetite of our living. Many singles are not throwing their heart and soul into the will of God for today because they are simply dying inside for something that God has not given them. Is that you? Has the longing of your heart for marriage slayed your appetite for living as a single person today? Are you simply dying inside for something God has not given you so that you are not throwing your heart and soul into the will of God for your day today? Charles Spurgeon, one of the most moving quotes I've ever read from Charles Spurgeon. I quote it all the time. I was reminded of it this afternoon. Had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you find yourself. Divine love would have placed you there. Do you hear that? We spend too much time thinking that some other condition would be better for us than the one in which we find ourselves. And he says, well, if that were true, divine love, capital D, capital L, divine love, your God, who is love, would have put you in that condition. If that condition was better for you than the one in which you find yourself. These are helpful things for us to cherish in our hearts. Singles, God may give marriage to you this year. He may. Married people. He may give you singleness. Sharon Standback wasn't expecting that on Christmas Eve, before Christmas morning came, her beloved Jack would die in sleep. God gave her singleness that day. She'd been married for years, decades. It's uncertain what gift God's going to give you tomorrow. What is certain? Two things. Number one, my marital status is a gift from God right now. The one I have right now is a gift from God. Number two, singleness 
is desirable. It's desirable. It doesn't mean you have to desire it over marriage. But what Paul's saying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is singleness is by itself desirable. Both are a gift. Listen to what Paul says. It is good for them if they remain single even as I. Why? Uh, does he really mean that? Why can Paul say How can Paul say that? Look ahead at verses 26 and 27. He says, It is good for a man to remain as he is. Do not seek a wife. If you're single, don't seek a wife. Does that, does that mean that it's sin to be, to be married? He's going to address all of that. No, he's saying, don't make it your life to chase a wife. Don't live for marriage. Live for the Lord. Live for His kingdom and His righteousness. Jesus said it in His Sermon on the Mount. Don't be anxious about anything. Seek God's kingdom. Seek His righteousness. He knows what good gifts to give you. Stop worrying about accumulating for yourself the gifts that only God can give you in His wisdom. He's the good Father. He only gives good and perfect gifts. He doesn't know how to give gifts that are not good. He doesn't know how to give gifts to His children that are not perfect. And He doesn't change. He doesn't change like you and I. He doesn't get in a bad mood and start dishing out bad gifts from heaven. <laughs> Counselors, another lesson that I've learned as a pastor, counselors are booked predominantly with married people struggling with marriage more than single people struggling in singleness. It's so funny that here I am, a man that longs for marriage. I long for the Lord to give me that grace. I do. I, I want to be honest in front of you. I don't want to lie. I don't want to act like it's all butterflies and rainbows. It's not. It's hard. But it's so funny that I'm really praying, Oh God, would you give me more things over which to be anxious? That's really what I'm saying when I'm saying, Lord, give me marriage. Give me a wife and children. Give me little bottles of anxiety, please. That's what Paul's going to get into here later in the chapter. Watch this, verses 32 to 35. I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife and his interests have been divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she might be holy both in body and spirit. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. Now watch this. Now this I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote propriety and undistracted devotion to the Lord. I thank God for my years of undistracted devotion to the Lord. And they've been hard. They've been hard. But I thank Him for those years. Paul so promotes singleness as a good thing that he has to actually comfort those who are engaged to be married. There are people that are engaged, Dak and Rachel. They're engaged, and, and here they are, here in this letter, and they're thinking, oh boy, should we cut off the engagement? 
And, and Paul says, no. Verse 36, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let the girl marry for crying out loud. I'm not here to disrupt engagements and marriages. I don't want to put a restraint on you. Marriage is good. God made marriage. But oh, what isn't talked about is how good singleness is. You see? Scripture does not pity singles for their singleness. So why do Christians pity other Christians for their singleness? That is unhealthy. That is wrong. We do not pity one another for our singleness. We can sympathize with one another and say, Brother, sister, I know. I know. I know the desire to be married strong. I can sympathize with that. But we sin when we begin to go... Single you. Oh, yeah, I know. It's tough being a second-class citizen, isn't it? <laughs> Life was extremely hard for single people, for divorcees, for widows in ancient Rome. And yet, Paul says, it is best that they remain single. What? Verse 9. But if they do not have self-control... Let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, I, I hesitated to read the words with passion. Why? Because the words with passion are nowhere to be found in the Greek. They're not there. That's an interpretation. The verb to burn is the verb purao. We get the words pyro or pyromaniac. Some of you have lived lives of pyromania. In the past, hopefully you've moved out of those years. It's used five other times in the New Testament. Every time it means fire, actual literal fire, not metaphorical fire. Paul is echoing the Sermon on the Mount. That's what he's doing here. He's not talking about burning with passion, okay? He's not writing Shakespearean poetry here. He's talking about what Jesus preached. Matthew 5.29, Jesus said, If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out, throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Translation, Paul says, better to get married than burn in hell. That's what he's saying. And I don't know how we've misinterpreted this. Marriage is not some miracle cure for your struggles, but... Don't you dare prefer a life of unrepentant sexual sin over getting married. If you have strong sexual desires, beg God to give you the gift of marriage. Seek His kingdom, seek His righteousness. Don't fret yourself over this, but beg Him, oh Lord, would you provide. And remember that single you will be married you. You're not going to magically change on the wedding night. My struggles have gone away. I'm cured from all my sexual diseases in that they're perverted, twisted desires outside of marriage. You talk to any woman who's married, you talk to any man who's married, and they'll say, your struggles don't stop at the altar. You've got to be no less vigilant. John Stott, a famous theologian who was single his whole life into his 90s, and I believe he's passed away now, but I can't remember. He says, apart from sexual temptation, this is a single man, 
The greatest danger which I think we face as singles is self-centeredness. If not careful, we may find the whole world revolving around ourselves. Kevin DeYoung, a very, very, very faithful preacher, warns us against recreational dating. Notice that he doesn't say dating, recreational dating, which at worst preys upon our selfishness and, I'm sorry, I made a big mistake. At best, preys upon our selfishness and at worst, upon our sexual struggles. Recreational dating just practices divorce. It promotes lust and selfishness. It doesn't promote love. Lastly, and most briefly, thirdly, Paul, the Holy Spirit through Paul, will condemn a married person's pursuit of singleness. Let me ask you a question. This question is going to breach over next week as well. How does 1 Corinthians smell? It smells like contentment to me. 1 Corinthians 7 smells content. And contentment is a deep trust of God's sovereign heart. Contentment is trusting how God uses his sovereignty. It's a big deal to trust that God is sovereign. It's an even bigger deal to trust how God uses his sovereignty. That's a much bigger deal. We'll see this again next week. Verse 17 says, Only as the Lord has assigned, that's his use of his sovereignty, to each one, as God has called, that's his use of his sovereignty, in this manner let him walk. And I direct this in all the churches. Are you trusting God? Do you trust his heart? Verse 10. But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. What's Paul saying there? What's he mean? That verses 10 and 11 are inspired word of God, but verses 12 and following are just Paul's opinion. Take it or leave it. Is that what Paul's saying? It's what some people say. Dead wrong. Verses 10 to 11 is a quotation of Jesus from Matthew 5.32. Every word of Scripture is inspired. Paul says he knows that he's writing Scripture in verse 40 of this chapter. So, in verses 12, 17, and 25, Paul is writing inerrant Scripture on equal authority with Jesus himself. Paul is writing truth as true as red letters. Now what does he quote? Verse 12, uh, verse 10. That the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And that the husband should not divorce his wife. Now what does this mean? It means that both Jesus and Paul have said, do not Divorce. Do not divorce. Don't marry someone you fear you may divorce or may divorce you. Okay, so I'm hearing you, Paul. I'm hearing you, Jesus. What if I was saved after I got married? I was a pagan, married to a pagan. I got saved after I was married. But my spouse has not yet been born again into salvation and repentance. What do I do now? It's a good question, isn't it? I'm a Christian. They're not. How do we handle this? You told me, and well, Paul will tell them in the next letter that he writes, not to be married to an unbeliever. 
Verse 12. But to the rest I say, to the rest I say, not the Lord. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Remember that Paul is saying, I'm not quoting Jesus here. I'm speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Christian spouse, the Christian parent, have a holy influence in the life of their home. By their example, by their witness, by their prayer, by their gospel living, what hope this brings to the home that has just one saved spouse, parent. Maybe some of you were brought up in such a home and you enjoyed the benefits of having one saved parent. Just one Christian in each home would change the world. However, a Christian is forbidden from pursuing a relationship with an unbeliever. That is explicit. 2 Corinthians 6. There's one exception to the rule of divorce that Paul has here in chapter 7. Okay? Verses 15 to 16. We close here. Yeah, if an unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. So if you're married to that unbeliever and you're a Christian and they want to leave you and you haven't done anything to make them want to leave, you're not poking them at night with a knife, you know, fine, I'm leaving. You're loving them as Christ loves lost sinners. And they say, yeah, I don't want, I don't want this anymore. He says, don't fight them. Love them leave. The brother or sister, the believing person, who is not enslaved in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O oh wife, whether you will save your husband? You can't do that. Only God can save them. And you're not the only thing that God can use to save them. Or how do you know, O oh husband, whether you will save your wife? You can't do that. Only God can save them. And you're not the only thing that God can use to save them. It's a sin to pursue divorce with an unbeliever. But it's equally sinful to refuse divorce with an unbeliever who wants to divorce you. So don't initiate divorce with them, but also allow it if that's what they want. Why? Because marriage is not missions and dating is not evangelism. And if that's the way you view it, you're wrong. And if you continue to view it that way after I just said that, you're in sin. I close with words from Horatius Bonner, famous Scottish hymn writer, who said, any dislike of God's sovereignty, do you have any dislike of God's sovereignty right now? Anything in your life that you think he's doing a poor job with? Any dislike of how God's controlling the universe? Any dislike of God's sovereignty arises from a suspicion of his heart. Are you happy 
Are you content? What's the one thing you are waiting for? What do you think if I just got that or got rid of this? I would be happy. Colossians 3 says, If you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. For you died, and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is manifested when He returns, then you also will be manifested with Him in glory. Philippians 4 says, My God will fulfill all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank You that these things are true. And we pray them in your name. Amen. Thank you for joining me for this sermon from the Trinity College and Young Adult Ministry. We would love for you to join us in person soon. For up-to-date information, follow our Instagram at trinityc.ya. For information regarding Trinity Community Church, visit trinitycc.com. And if you're interested in a great Bible college here in the area, check out calchristiancollege.edu. Until he returns... May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you.